Welcome to episode 7 of the Fit for Golf podcast. The goal of this podcast is to share insightful and entertaining conversations about golf, fitness and health. This episode is with Liam McDougall, one of the world's leading club fitters. He works on the European and PGA Tour for Titleist, making sure the best players in the world can get the absolute most out of their equipment. Before we start the podcast, I want to make sure you are all aware of the Fit for Golf app. It is the only golf fitness resource you will ever need and is currently being used by six PGA Tour players, one European Tour player, and thousands of amateurs all over the world. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog and use the code PREMIUM50 to get a one-month trial for just $6. You will not find it in the App Store. You must go to the website. This will be absolutely perfect for all of your off-season training goals. Now to club fitting with Liam McDougall. Liam, thank you very much for joining me. I'm looking forward to talking all things club fitting with you and seeing if you can share some knowledge with our guests and hopefully get them playing a little bit better or at least using equipment that gives them a better chance. How is everything going? All good. Thanks very much for having me. Um, looking forward to chatting some. I've enjoyed reading some of your Twitter questions and and some of your um, research papers, I would put it like that. Great. Brilliant. Can you give us a quick rundown of exactly what you do? Yeah. So I'm a tour manager on the European tour, so... I'm in charge of our tour truck and our club team uh, on a weekly basis. So we we're looking to service the best players in the world with the, with the best products and make sure they're 100% fitted um, to elevate their game. And that starts from you know golf ball, and then we work up from golf ball, so ball wedge irons um, into metal woods, um, and then. Uh, obviously, we've got another a separate team that looks at footwear as well, that, which is getting as interesting as the as the hardware side also. Um, so yeah, that's Excellent. what we do. Excellent. Some people are maybe a little bit dubious about what exactly club fitting can do for a player. You know, we often hear it's not it's not the clubs, it's the player. But I wanted to start this episode with a quote from Eddie Pepperell shortly after the U.S. Open in Aaron Hills, where he came tied 16th. And this is in reference to a visit he had with you. So this is from Eddie's blog. I went to see him in April. I explained to him my shot patterns, what I did and didn't like to see, and what I wanted. I came away from that session so much more knowledgeable. I said to him that I was afraid to use the driver because I'd hit so many shots low and left with it. Subsequently, and purely out of fear, I would then hit some high and right. He explained to me that my driver simply wasn't creating enough backspin to basically rule out the low left shot. In hindsight, I was so incredibly naive when it came to the technical aspects of equipment. As soon as we added backspin to the driver and put a different higher spinning ball in play, the low and left shot pretty much disappeared and my confidence gradually returned. This change was 100% the reason behind my top 20 at the US Open. I was unafraid to hit driver that week on a course that demanded good driving in an environment that was also quite challenging. 
That's mm. <laughs> uh, some good quotes there. <laughs> but he, have you he, seen that before? Have you heard that before? Or you probably talked to him about it? Yes, yeah, you have been a bit kind there because I think he refers to me as being the, the bald oracle. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I left out the introduction part. But um, in all seriousness, no, that's, that's, I think, a perfect testimonial from someone who had nothing to gain by giving one about how useful equipment fitting that player is. Yeah, it was an interesting visit because Eddie came in initially to see us for a golf ball thing. And we were sitting in the, the canteen just chatting about what he was doing with with his products and what he was struggling with, with the driver, etc. And as you rightly said, he was struggling to lose it. He was losing it low and left and, or, or left predominantly. Um, and he was coming out of a, a competitor contract and wanted to use another driver um, just to see what else was out there, if it could help him. And we went through a fitting process and it was more about the education of what he was doing and why the bad shot was, a, was coming. Some of these guys now... They go down a, a, a rabbit hole because they, they've, they're all launch monitor friendly. So they'll look at a launch monitor and, and look at a, a track man or a quad unit and they'll go, right, I've hit that 320 yards, right, I wanna, I'm going to try and hit it 330. And they're all trying to hit it higher launch, lower spin. So when you lower the spin and you, and you become a, you know, a distance chaser, when you get really low on the spin, you've got to be aware of that that miss and that impact location. So if that player out in the middle of the golf club is spinning it at 1,800, let's say, and his miss is toe side, so what you'll get toe side is you'll get a spin drop, right? So straight away, if he hits toe side, that could be that could be 1,100. You know, that could be really low and the ball's just going to dive with no life in it, really. So you really, it's it, when you're fitting a, a high-level player, um and even into in, in the handicap guys, like the the most important thing I look at is impact location and the patterns, and that key, that can be at any level. At tour level, you're dealing with minute details that can make a huge difference. Where is it retail level with guys? They've always got a short pattern. When if somebody says oh, I hit it all over the face, I'm like okay. Like when you're when you're playing well, do you hit a draw or a fade? You'll start to get an idea where they hit like where, where their miss is. And like when you're playing really bad, what's the bad shot? And then oh, I slice it, right? Okay, so he's, he's in the heel. So then then you can move around the, the weights and the, the CG movements and golf clubs and lie angles to help that player. Um, but it's a whole process of understanding what, to, what journey to take the player on, really. Yeah, so that kind of tipped into my next question, which you, you got to, which is the difference between we kind of can see with Eddie, we're getting a, a really good tour player, getting very in-depth in terms of eliminating shots that make him feel uncomfortable and linking it back to spin rates, golf ball, strike location. It's interesting with higher handicap players whose number one complaint is usually consistency even though their ball flight might be very inconsistent, you're saying that they do have a lot of consistency in how they actually deliver the club more often than not. Yeah, you look at it like a high percentage of handicapped golfers will, will genuinely slice the ball. So 
they're going to be hitting it out the heel uh, nine times out of ten and creating a lot of spin and it'll curve it'll curve uh, to the right. So you then work with the lie angle, the golf club and the weight um, and the CG placement to, to try and help that. The easiest fitting, I've got to be honest, is, and I've had this with top 10 player in the world and and a really um, high handicapper is when they say, I never want to see it go left or I never want to see it go right. Because you can, I can do stuff to that golf club to make sure that it's never ever going to go left. Um, at some point, technique wise, they'll start seeing it going too far right, and then you'll need to bring them back. But there's there's various things we can do to eliminate that. Are some of those things would that be related to say weighting, lie angles, things like that, or are or is it something different? Yeah, so you've got. You'll go lie angle first, see if that works. You've got head weight. Head weight's the big thing um, as well. You can play with head weight, which kind of lead, leads into your world, really, because if a, if, a guy's, if a player's getting stronger, they can handle more mass. So for me, I call it like the energy transfer line. If, we, if I've got a, a driver head and I put it on a set of scales, Everyone will be doing this at home now with the wife scales. But if it, if they put their driver head on a set of scales and it says right one nine one ninety head weight, if I put uh, let me see Jimmy Walker um, on a, his head on a set of scales, it, it would say two hundred and fifteen grams. So there's a different amount of mass hitting that golf ball. So as long as you can handle the weight. Um, and you can move it and your speed's not dropping. I call it like an energy transfer line. If you envision something starting bottom left corner of an A4 piece of paper and going to top right, at some point in that line, the, the energy will drop so the player won't be able to handle the mass. So you'll see a bit like the speed sticks. So like if you've got the really light speed stick, you'll be able to create loads of speed. You try and put a a really light head on it, it's not going to go far because there's no mass. And then there's a there's a tipping point with a player um, to where his maximum head mass will be. There's loads of different scenarios there, really. I mean, you can relate it to a garden post if you're using a light hammer and a heavy hammer and stuff. How would that relate to, so you're talking about mass and you mentioned the head. What about the shaft weight? Like, yeah. is, is it more the the mass of the head is what's dictating, say, the energy that's being transferred to... So let's just say if you had a, a, a golf club with uh, one of them has a heavy head and another one is the same weight, but some of that mass is put into the shaft, is that a little bit different? The weight needs to be in the head for more of that mass to be transferred to the ball? That becomes player-dependent because then you're looking in how, to the, how the shaft's loading. So, like, if you look at um, Fujikura, have got a, a good machine that um, that they can see where the shaft loads. So, like, Podrick Harrington, who, who you know, but Podrick, he'll only play a, a Fujikura shaft, a, a certain type of Fujikura, an XR uh, Fujikura, because he's been through this machine and it tells him where he loads a golf club. He's getting the maximum energy transfer to the golf ball in that particular load. When you start changing... The, the head weight you can change your load so it's a it's a correlation it's a partnership really that you keep having to keep working at okay um moving on a little bit this this 
again, ties in with what I just asked. Um, but something that I keep hearing from non-club fitters, basically amateur golfers, anytime I hear them talking about club feeding, they always talk about the importance of the shaft. People are saying you need to get the shaft right. It's all in the shaft. But I've heard an expert club fitter say, usually priority number one is getting the correct head. Mm. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, like, like you said, we, ju- we just did there really, but the the shaft is, you know, the worst thing I hear is the shaft's the engine. Like, it, it ain't the engine. Like, the technology, the vast amount of the technology is in the head. Um, like, like Eddie Pepperell's just like alluded to in, in that opening statement, like, the head is the head is the king, and then you work. The biggest thing for me, like you can look at a, an EI profile of a of a shaft, or, or what a shaft's supposed to launch and spin like. That's on paper. When you give it to a Pacific player, the big thing for me with shafts is feels. So I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, a player, you PGA Tour player, was really really struggling with his game, and. It, went down a bit of a, a bit of a journey and got lost and we, he was almost going to quit to be honest I went through our database we, we, we spent a three days in Florida and I went through a database and looked at everything he'd used previously in his career the shaft that he had most success with and when he, he reached the peak as an amateur golfer and then and then uh, done very well as a, as a tour player, was something that you probably wouldn't have put him into, but you're taking him back to something that he had success with and he likes to feel of. Sometimes these players get lost by literature or what somebody else is using. Like if you you look around and you see like Justin Thomas puts in a type of shaft, everyone thinks, well, I'm going to try that shaft because it's, you know, and that's, that's the domino effect of tour players. Tour players are, you know, they're a fickle bunch. If something's working, they'll they'll want to try it. And, and the reverse effect, if something's not working, then they'll they'll stay clear of it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an important part, um, a very important part, but it's not. It's not the engine as such. What did you do with that tour player, the guy who had been struggling? Um, he, again, he did not want. So kind of going back to head weight there. So he plays really sh- uh, a short driver. Um, he was hit. He would had bad, bad, bad lefts. <laughs> he almost, you know, had a fear of going left. Um, what I done with the head was was internally used glue to to increase the head weight. Now he he needed that club to be heavy because he played a really short short length. So I had to put a lot of weight inside the head to hit swing weight, which was good because. The weight that I put in the head, I put it to the toe side and back. So the head's always staying open and it doesn't want to go left. And it's adding loft, which will genuinely add spin. So then he says, ah, that's not went left. The next one, that's not went left. So then what you see is the confidence goes up and they think, you know, go on, I'm getting more ball speed. They're not really. They're just getting more confident that they're seeing something working and therefore they react and get quicker. Um, yeah, there was it was a bit of a long journey that one, but we he kicked on and done. He's he's done quite well. Yeah, he's come back. That's excellent. Um, so 
in the last few years, we see lots of particularly amateur players talk about iron lofts getting stronger and stronger. Hmm. Is that a marketing ploy or is it that technology allows basically manufacturers to make the lofts lower but still have the ball go the right height and have the right landing angle and, and stop control, basically? Yeah, you, I mean, you've answered it there, really. Like, if, if you take a large head, and this is all manufacturers, like, if you look across the board, everyone's lofts in certain um, models of their golf clubs have got stronger, but it's not to... It's not to fool the it's not to fool the end uh, consumer. It's it's for performance. If you don't put the lofts to where they're supposed to be, they're going to go straight up into the air. Um, you know, if you look at one of our our models, like a T three hundred, for example, if that loft isn't stronger, then it's just going to fly straight up in, into the air because of the the CG properties and the design of the golf club. Um, that's that's it really in a nutshell it's for design it i've got to be honest it like i i use blades and it like i need all the help i can get but i'm stuck on blades because i grew up in links and, I, and I, i'm very you know i'm uh, shallow and i need the most forgiveness i can get but like when my my friends i can't get out of blades and my friends hit like a seven iron into the par three and they go what do you hit and i'm like six and I'm like, oh, I hit a seven. I'm in my head. I'm going, you didn't really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, you are a perfect person to answer this next question, and it also doubles as a nice advertisement for me. Uh, just, just messing, but uh, no, seriously. So this was one of the most common questions that people asked when I put up the uh, the Twitter request, and I get a lot of emails about this too. Is um. Oftentimes, someone, and especially people listening to this podcast, they're interested in training. They gain five to seven miles per hour of club head speed, let's say over three or six months. How likely is it they would benefit from a change in equipment? You've gained about 10 miles an hour since you started training a year, a year and a half ago. Mm, yeah. How would you approach that? And obviously as well, like, the, the average golfer, you know, doesn't want to get, say, a 500 euro driver, you know, after his six month training, if he got one recently, just because he's stronger, basically. Yeah, it, it works together. Like it kind of goes to that energy transfer line I was saying about, like, I think the training aspect of, of, of what you, you bring in the the programs that, that you do, if, as somebody's getting stronger and fitter and more uh, golf performance based like they have if they look at their equipment as well it works in tandem really like you can you can keep gaining like I was I've got to be honest like I have came as you can imagine a lot across a lot of people in the industry that and I've tried to get speed because I'm a one handicap golfer and I don't know anyone that hit that lit I'm past at my golf club. I'm like the shortest one handicap golfer, and I was like, I need, I need speed here. And you know, when you're testing products at the R and D facility, and you need, you need, I was like, I need more speed. I need to work and get get better. And and it, it was my friend Danny that put me on to you because I tried various different avenues to try and gain speed. And if I do something, I you know, I give it everything. Like I've got a yeah. a very competitive sportsman mentality, and 
if if I do something, I'm all in. Like, and when I when I done uh, and continue to do your program, um, the couple of things I liked about it, to be fair, was that it's in your it's in your phone and it sends you reminders. It's like you need a train, like, and then you get you get an email, and then it's like your con, and then the app pings up. It's like yeah, know, yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> and did as you gain speed, did you make? Uh, alterations to your equipment yeah i had to like even to be honest even now like we've brought out um the, the new driver even now like uh, the shaft that i've went into and the tipping at the bottom end the like the tipping's really weak for me like i feel as though the head's just gonna take over and go left so like i need something to be a little bit more tip strong and like increase the head weight for me um but I'm gonna gonna visit that. It's hard though fitting yourself. You need somebody to, you need somebody there being looking at it and and being honest with you. Yeah, so it it definitely is then worthwhile for people who have gained speed go back to a fitter and oh, see if to. you if see if you can go into new equipment basically. But got to, I mean so give you an example like Scott Jameson who I put in touch with yourself like we've had to revisit Scott's equipment because he's, he's gained speed. Like Scott's like put on a tremendous amount of speed. Like he was, he was struggling at one point about 18 months ago. His speed's down at like one twelve. Like he had some health issues and, and yeah, and wasn't training as, as hard. And then, you know, he's, he sent me a note the other day. I think it was one twenty three club head speedy. And, you know, he was getting one eighty three ball speed. Like, you have to revisit that. It's a different engine. It's a different person holding the stick. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's perfect. That is something that answers a lot of people's queries um, about if they gain speed, do they need new clubs? Um, the next one is similar, but but re- it's definitely related. If somebody is making swing changes that are going to alter how they deliver the golf club to the ball, should they wait to get a club fitting until they are more comfortable with their technique or should they get fit now even though their technique is changing? Yeah, that's a pretty good question because I had a discussion with um, a coach and a player this week. Um, they want to do some work um, off-site um, and my request, he, he requested we do some work and my request was for the coach to be there. Uh, so as long as long as the coach is there, I'm happy. I'm I'm happy to do it and more comfortable to do it because you need to work together. So if if someone uh, listen to the podcast, you know, not a professional golfer, if they tell the fitter, look, this is what I'm working on with my coach. This is this is the road I'm going down. This is what I'm trying to achieve. You can help uh, with the golf clubs to try and go down the same path as as the as the uh, teacher as the pro so it, it kind of works in tandem and certainly the most success we've had is when the player's there and the, and and the coach is there really okay if it's uh if it's not possible for an amateur to bring their coach to a fitting best scenario is probably at least get the coach to give them information they can give to the fitter so the fitter knows what they're working with if you're taking it seriously, you can go to any to go go to any level. Like get the coach to drop a quick email to your to the fitter, or take notes yourself. Like send a send an image over, send a quick short video over of like a capture of your lesson of what you're trying to do, and then 
the fitter, if the fitter dissects that, he can go along the same same path as what your your coach is trying to do. There's any sort of communication is is vital. So like to give you an insight, I've got like a it's like a file of facts, and I've got all the players' names in the file of facts. I'm probably saying too much here. Don't want the oh yeah <laughs> competitors saying stealing all the stuff. But you, I've got a file of facts, and basically, so if we've got uh, Adam Scott, so go to S on Adam, have a look. I've got his likes, dislikes, what he likes to hear, what he doesn't like to hear, what his coach was working on, and then I've got the date, and then if that coach gets back in touch with me, I then put down again, okay, coach, now working on blah, blah, now working on desired shot shape being left to right instead of right to left. Could these players change? Um, and even for a given tournament, they can change. You know, if you look at the Masters, for example, some guys look to always draw the ball or, you know, they want to they draw it that given week. That That's something that we can genuinely help them do for that given week if they wish. No, that's great. Um, what common mistakes do you see amateurs have in their bag makeup? So even if, say, clubs are reasonably suitable, but they just should have different ones, basically. For example, something that I think, um, just from watching players, is a lot of my buddies are mid to higher level handicaps, and I've never seen them hit a three wood or a five wood well off a tee or off the fairway. Like they're way better off teeing up a driver and they're much better off with a hybrid. And that leaves nearly 70 or 80 yards between between their first and say second club in the bag that they're able to hit. I think that the similarities at um, tour level and uh, the consumer level are, are very similar because you get players out here that think they should be playing stiffer shafts or firmer shafts and wanting the extra stiff and you're not maybe not there anymore. Maybe it's, you know, if you, in all honesty, speaking open and honest, if you leave the ego at the door with club fitting, you'll have a great experience. If you go in there and you think you should be an eight degree extra stiff and you want the, the extra stiff irons and you want the hardest to hit irons, then you're going to struggle. Like there was a player, I don't, I'm not going to say his name, but someone played in the Ryder Cup with regular shafts year, a few years back. And like, I think that story should be out there more because even when the guys go from a stiff to a regular or regular to graphite, you just play what works. Like yeah. if, if, we could, if you put a sticker on it and you put extra stiff, they, they probably would because <laughs> well, that feels great it works fantastic and it says extra stiff yeah that's what I think I need <laughs> yeah and would you have any I know it's it's individual but in terms of I think the two ends of the bag where a lot of players struggle is say going from like where they start their irons what happens between say four or five iron and driver and then up the other end of the bag what happens from kind of nine iron to most lofted club do you have any kind of say even general tips for the 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 regular amateur there in terms of what you think is often good choices to put in there? I know it's kind of putting you on the spot. You're you're, yeah. you're not looking at one golfer. No, I would generally say like the the most loft you can have in you, the most forgiveness you can have in your hand, something that's going to give you the most ball flight 
when at the top end of the bag. So when you're looking at a three and four iron and a five iron, what's going to give you the most flight, the most forgiveness, and then work back from there. Um, and, that's, and then the bottom end of the bag really, um, it, it's just scoring and it's feel really at, at that point of the of the bag and and seeing where you start. You've quite a lot of guys will play a Vokey pitching wedge instead of the set pitching wedge because they, they want to use that feel and be able to open and close your blade and all that sort of stuff. Um, the, I'd say that the top end of the bag from your, for your question is the more uh, the, the more important one for the for the amateur golfer. Yeah, likely looking at some hybrids rather than the yeah. three and four iron. Exactly. Yeah, or, or yeah. maybe even five iron and six iron. I mean, there's, exactly. Yeah, there's very few guys that at tour level that play a bladed two iron and a bladed three iron. You know, and you know, and even if you look at you uh, have been working with recently, like. Uh, to take Tommy, take Fleetwood for example. Tommy's got um, four and five iron like muscle back, so they're, like they're bigger, they flight it higher, and they spin it a wee bit more. And then as he goes down, he's in in blades, and then he goes into the in these wedges. Like he's he's got a blend. Um, to have that blend's important. You need to use you need to use what works. The game's hard. Like the game's hard enough. You don't want to be using something that's going to make it too too more difficult. Yeah, no, for definite. How similar is the equipment available to amateurs that is available to tour pros? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's identical. To be fair, we uh, pride ourselves kind of on that. The only the only thing that you will get. Um, access to as a, as, a, as a tour guy is using the hot melt but if you go to a fitter that uses hot melt they can they can glue any head they can glue any manufacturer and really if they want to use that the problem there is that if you glue it it's glued and it's done so like um again being open and honest like if we're working with a player sometimes sometimes we get it wrong and that head's done you know and you're like right that head, the glue's in the wrong position, he's hit it, it's not working, let's revisit it if you need the glue. Like, to, to be fair, the, our new TSI 3 driver, you, there's there's not much gluing going on. It's a very good product and it's it's uh, stable and good results. So, yeah, and then you've got the track at the back of, of what we've got. So we can just use that instead of putting glue inside the head and moving things around, really. You just need to move the move the uh move the weights yeah no that's perfect like there's there's definitely tales of um you hear kind of people saying that the equipment the pros have access to you know is hotter of higher quality the the tour prototypes and stuff like this you know but i never really bought it as such you know no you i mean there's prototypes that like don't get me wrong there's like it, like even if we've gone through the process just now, so our process of launching a new driver is that we'll we'll put it out on tour and um, we will validate the we call it the validation process and we'll feedback. I'll feedback. I was just on a call this afternoon to R and D on on our uh, driver in three wood and five wood, and I'm giving them feedback and we're validating the product. 
before it hits the shelf. So, like, if anything needs minor tweaks at this point, we are the we are the testing block for that to happen before it comes out. But um, rest assured, like, what the the public buy is is what the the tour guys are using. Um, as I alluded to, you know, you, you might get guys that will glue the heads and stuff. That's a fact. But there is. You know, there is tour product. Um, over the years, there has been tour issue product. and stuff But it's like still that. following the same rules, oh, yeah. basically. It's, it's, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, not, yeah. Uh, it's not outside of this, the types of things that regular clubs can do, basically. Yeah. We've got a, a machine on the truck, and that tells me the, how fast our he- how the driver head is. And we have rules and regulations. We are tightly, tightly governed. Um, than than what we can give to a player, um, and you know you'll have seen um, it was widely in the press like the the um, governing bodies test the equipment. So there's nothing untoward happening out there. Um, you're trying to keep the guys on the cutting edge of performance, and we've got a machine on there to make sure number one they ain't playing anything they shouldn't be in number two that they're at the cutting edge of the performance, really. We, we want to remain very, very credible. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Bryson's jumbo grips and face stability, is this something that will catch on? Have you seen more players experimenting with it? Have you guys experimented with it? I, I remember picking up at the Ryder Cup, I remember Bennett, Cobra, like, he was doing a re-grip and he gave me um, one of Bryson's clubs and I held it and I was like, oh my word. So like, it felt so light and like massive, like the grip was massive, it's unbelievable. Like you've got, I think you've got to take your hat off to the guy. He's went away, he's worked his backside off. And, you know, it's, I think we're one of the only sports that if somebody goes away, works hard, like works their socks off, comes out and wins that, we then, in certain areas, then criticise it. It's like, I'm like, the guy's worked his backside off here. I'm like, you know, um, I don't, there'll be a few, you know, on the range, you know, if somebody, what I picked up on this this week, actually, if somebody's trying to hit a hard one on the range, they're calling it the Bryson now. That's for sure. They're like, this is the Bryson. Um, yeah, good luck to them. <laughs> yeah. do, do, do you see the grips becoming more popular or do they have kind of inherent say risks for less skilled players yeah I, not necessarily Bryson's grips I see the grip area of the golf club becoming more important I think the, I think it's getting researched further and um, I think Sasha McKenzie has got a good research paper on it I think the forces you apply to the grip end of the golf club are becoming more visited and there's getting more knowledge shared around that end, which might that's see been, grips. That's been a big change in my programming the last, this year basically as well, is yeah. like we, we've talked or like people have talked so much about the ground, the ground forces and using yeah. the ground. The only way that those ground forces are beneficial is if they increase how much force you're applying to the grip. If you increase your ground force, but don't increase how much force you apply to the grip, there won't be any increase in speed. It's mad, isn't it? Like I'm, I struggled with it because I spoke to to Sasha when he was chatting on some of this stuff, and I was like, 
that's crazy. That's going against everything. Like, you know, in growing up playing golf, I was taught to grip it, grip it soft, grip it like toothpaste is what we were taught. <laughs> like, grip it like toothpaste. Now it's like, like apply the forces and twist and, and stuff like that. Maybe there's going to be grips coming out that's going to do that or a fitting process that's going to show you grip force. Well, there, there has been a researcher has done that, a Japanese guy. Um, yeah, it was, I just took Sasho's course. I don't want to bore the listeners now, but basically um, a forces in motion course with Sasha yeah. McKenzie and Phil Cheatham. And um, that was one of the things that Sasha touched on a lot. There is a, I think it's a Japanese researcher. I can't remember his last name and it's difficult to pronounce, but he developed a grip that allowed them read and collect the forces that were being applied by the hands. Wow. And Sasha was kind of saying that if you can do that, it um it makes it very interesting in terms of what we're talking about, basically fitting and definitely from my point of view. And I've started doing it more in my more recent programs and the stuff that I've been assigning to the pros that I'm training and for the next program I have coming out is how can we get stronger, not just at pushing into the ground with your feet or rotating with your hips and torso, but how can we get our upper body and arms to pull on the grip harder, basically, because that's, I think, something that people have been missing out on quite a bit. Yeah, that's, that's great. It's great to hear. It'd be interesting how that evolves, actually. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's something that will be interesting. Um, we hear a lot of good players complaining that hybrids go left. Is there something mystical about the about the setup of hybrids that have a left bias compared to other clubs? Uh, there's nothing. I mean, I think that I'd agree with that comment first and foremost. I think the majority of guys that uh, our level we see, like they will tend to hit them hit them left or have left bias in them. I think first and foremost, they're there to help. Like if we go back to one of the earlier comments at the start, like the vast majority of golfers will lose the ball to the right of the of the course so they'll hit slice so it's there to help and hit it higher with with some ball flight and not go not go right so it's part of the design process again there's things that we do we can just move the weight to the toe to to counteract that and play with a lie angle to counteract that as well yeah so if uh if say a, a better player or a more highly skilled player is seeing a hybrid going left, it's probably just a case of getting a, f- a fitting or having a, a look at more hybrid setups so that they're not using one that's designed for the sl- the game improvement uh, slicer, basically. That first shot's really important. So before he hits it, the first thing I would do is go flatter lie angle, more weight in the toe, um, and then hopefully have the face open um, in a setting that's open as well, and then, then go from there. And now, certainly in in anyone's world, to be fair, and the first the first shot, the first couple of shots are very, very important. And you need to be right because as soon as you see something not working, you kind of it's kind of set in your head, isn't it? Like that's that's not right. Well, that's went way left. Oh, yeah. yeah. So the first shot really is important. That's like the honeymoon period with new clubs. Yeah. You get a new driver that you're after spending six hundred dollars on. And you convince yourself that it's a better driver. And yeah. for 20 balls, it is. And then yeah. you know, you get kind of one bad one, two bad ones. And then it's like, this is actually pretty similar to my last driver. <laughs> <laughs> where, where should people go for a fitting? Like, 
I know it's the same with every type of job, basically, but I'm sure you can get a vastly different fitting experience mm. dependent on where you go for a fitting. So what are things that players should be looking out for? And uh, in addition to that, can players that live near you get fitted by you or do they have to be on the tour? Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, so we're, we uh, have just built a facility, uh, Titleist have just built a facility at, at Woburn Golf Club, um, which is um, a tour facility. Uh, high amount of money has, has went into this facility and it is an all-singing industry-leading um, facility in Europe, which is going to blow people's blow people's mind when it opens very soon, starting November. We're going to open it. Um, they can. We're eventually going to. I'm going to like do maybe twelve to sixteen fittings a year there for um, consumers at a certain. The company will decide what they want to what they want to charge. Um, I'll do that. But, the hard part for, for myself is time is getting you know when you're on the road and all the all the time is getting that time to to give to the other side of the business. But we're going to try and do it a wee bit more. Certainly when our facility opens, I think um, what I would say is like is do your research. Go to somewhere that is that has all the capabilities of um, building. It all depends how serious you want to take it. You know if you if you're a recreational golfer, then I would I would encourage you to get, at least get a fitting. If you're a very important, if you're a serious golfer and you want to spend serious money on it, then then go to the best. Go and find out who's the best, who has the best reputation, who can fit the best, who can build the best. And um, go to the brands. You know, come to the Titleist National Fitting Centre. Go to in Ping and Callaway and TaylorMade National Fitting Centre go direct to the brand who, if your heart's set on a set of Titleists or a set of Pings, for example, go to them because they're going to know everything about them product. If you're open to a different bag and you want a bit of mix, then go to someone that's got a very good reputation and can fit well and build well, is what I would say. Excellent. Um, last one then, Liam. Where do you see equipment going? Like, what are what are some things that you can see happening? Like, we have we have artificial intelligence, self driving cars down motorways. What's what's going to start happening with golf clubs? Something I'm kind of thinking of is: is there going to be intelligence in them that uh, that is changing stuff based on our shot patterns and this sort of thing? That that, in all honesty, was done a few years ago. So. Then that was done. So it went, somebody created a driver that when you hit, when you're hitting, it would the, it would open wings and it would stabilize itself before it came into impact. Probably non-conforming. Uh, yes, hundred percent. Like that's one of the good things. If you if you take all the shackles off, then you can create whatever you want to create, really, and then just wind it back. But but it's exciting. Yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, I should have framed my question better and left out the uh, artificial intelligence in terms of things that are definitely going to be legal, like and still mm-hmm. still relies on the golfer's skill. Is there any kind of areas that you think people don't really know a lot about yet but are being researched heavily by R&D departments? 
Yeah, we've got an innovation team in um, in Carlsbad, and we are constantly chatting about different materials, different different products, different shapes. Um, I went to one of the um, R and D teams for Formula One, tried to pick a few of their brains and see what their materials those guys were using and what they were researching and what breakthroughs they were working on, like. As you rightly say, like I'm not speaking on behalf of the, the company here as Titleist, speaking as a golfer, it, nothing would surprise me what they come out with. Like it wouldn't surprise me if there's stuff going to be electronic, computerized stuff in the driver, and it then tells you your Trackman numbers, for example. You know, like as you say, like when you look at when you look at uh, like cars and how we're, how the world's evolving faster with technology. Then you, you never know what, what you'll be allowed to do as long as the, the governing bodies allow that sort of stuff, really. Yeah. Liam, that is excellent. Thank you very much for your time. You shared okay. some great And uh, if I get any questions, I will be sure to send them on. And I hope to chat to you soon. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.